we think about those significant questions that Missy just rose um, that are going on in our country that are national questions, but also highly personal uh, questions of pregnancy and uh, life and the pro-choice, pro-life narrative that um, we might say argument that is ensuing nationally. When you think about just the layers of struggle and need that are involved within um, all, of, all of what that represents, how significant it is to have a ministry like Hope Clinic stepping towards that, not away from it, in a way that's bringing healing and tangible service and not just adding fuel to the culture war that's happening. Praise God for that. As we think about that kind of response and we think about the questions that circle in and around that, we're looking at a prophet today and over the next five weeks together who knows all about hard questions and all about even harder answers that come from God and how to make sense of them. So we turn our attention to the very beginning of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 1. We'll read the entire chapter together through verse 17. Let's give attention to God's Word. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar and they fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God? My Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea. Like crawling things that have no ruler, he brings all of them up with a hook and he drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. 
Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we sit before this word, we so desperately need to understand what it is that you would communicate to us. Apart from the work of your spirit, we are completely blind and deceived But with the illuminating light that comes by your presence, we can see and behold the truth. We can embrace it by faith. We may even obey it according to your will. Listen and be mindful that we are needy people. Needy people with many questions. And sometimes, Father, we sit in those questions in a way that sabotages our faith. And when we hear you speak, sometimes your words unsettle us more than the problems we see. Father, come now. And come in proportion to the needs of the souls in this room. Help us to know what you mean through the words that you speak. And let us by faith trust you even when we don't understand. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I noted at the very beginning, if you joined us uh, in the midst of the service, that we're starting this new series in the book of Habakkuk. I presume you could, you could be a long time in a local church and never be in a series on Habakkuk probably never hear a message, much less a series on Habakkuk, and I'm wondering how we're going to work through these three chapters in five weeks. That's our plan because they're so rich. The realization is this, this book has, one of the reasons I, I chose this book to follow early after our investigation of John chapter 4 over the last three weeks together is the questions that Habakkuk raises are so poignantly needed in our time. And the kinds of dialogues that we have about the faith in the 21st century, about our God, what He does, what He claims, and how that sits on the mind and the heart of the average North American today is really different than even in times before. And it raises many questions that make Christianity in large part for many swaths of people implausible and something that they cannot embrace. In fact, the questions that Habakkuk raises even for those who are believers in Christ, get to the very core of often why we struggle inside of the faith that we believe and still find ourselves battling on a regular basis doubts and concerns, questions about who God is and what it is that He's about. Habakkuk gives us both a model 
for how to engage with God with the big questions that are in our hearts and minds. And he gives us an example of what it looks like to be able to engage those questions with others as they arise. And they will arise. The questions that are sitting on the text of Habakkuk 1, though it might not be immediately accessible as we read the text this morning, it will be as we make our way through it. That this is as pertinent as the things going on in your life right now as what's happening on the 5 o'clock news. Very, very pertinent. And one of the things that's really critical for Christians in our day, in any time, but I think especially right now, is that we are prepared to give a defense for the hope that is within us. That's what Peter tells us to do. We, we not just know what we believe, but we know why we believe it. And we know how to talk about it. And Habakkuk actually gives us some, some answers to penetrating and probing questions of our time. The answers he gives will challenge us. And they will challenge those who are looking for a really nice, neat bow on the top of the package. But I would suggest to you, I'd advance to you, that what you're seeing in the pages of Habakkuk, though not clean and often quite messy and complicated, are the most plausible answers out there for why things are the way they are and making sense of the world in which we live in. It leaves you with some questions, some mysteries. But you probably expected that if you've been walking with this God for very long. We'll see that as we look at the text together. I want you to see first in this text that Habakkuk comes with what many scholars refer to as a protest. It may be listed in your text if you have your Bibles open, but you can also see it in the bulletin as a complaint. This could also come as a legal complaint. That word could be like we're complaining, like we do when we don't get the food that we want at supper. Or it could mean a formal complaint where we're issuing a kind of legal complaint. And it's the latter that we're talking about when we approach Habakkuk. He's levying, as it were, a formal legal complaint against the Lord. We could say it this way. He's taking him to court. He feels like, as he looks out at the world, that he has evidence against what it is that the Lord claims to be about. And he's none too happy about it. He's more than a little irritated. He's angry. He's frustrated. And he's in the tone of one who's demanding an explanation for the things that he sees. He actually asks the very questions that you and I ask whenever we begin to read statistics of what's happening among abortions in North America since Roe v. Wade. Or why Christians are decapitated on beaches in the Middle East. Those kinds of horrific, frightening, unnerving, deeply concerning, gut-wrenching kind of moments where we just can't make sense of a God who claims certain things about himself and says he's up to certain things and then allows these things to take place. We've all been in those questions and we'll be in them again. 
Habakkuk's right there, and he sees, as he says, violence everywhere. It's before my eyes. I can't escape it. And the two questions he asks about all that he sees as he approaches God are the same questions we ask. You know what they are? How long and why? Aren't those what we ask? How long, O oh Lord? That's what we see there in verse, in verse 2. How long until this is solved? Why are you allowing this to continue, right? These are the questions we ask when, when they're in the midst of suffering and what appears to us to not match up with the God who has said and revealed himself one way with what we see unfolding in time and space and history. Now, that question of how long is actually not a question of duration. I don't believe that Habakkuk, neither do we when we typically ask it, are actually asking the Lord, listen, Lord, tell me, is it another five or six years? It's not really a question for how long. It's a rhetorical question that's meant to say, why in the world is this continuing? It's the way that my dad used to speak to me when I would do something foolish for the tenth time. And he'd say, son, how long are you going to do this? Now, I wasn't going to say something like, at least three or four more times, Dad, I think. That's not, that was not what the question intended to ask. It was a rhetorical question that was meant to say, stop this now, you fool. That's what was intended. There's something of that tone here. In fact, one scholar who argues about the tone and reflects on the tone of what it is that Habakkuk's advancing both at the beginning in the verse 4 verses of Habakkuk 1 and also in verse 12 is these rhetorical questions are usually, they're in a Hebrew construction that is most commonly recognized in argument. He's arguing with the Lord and in, in a very real sense in a formalized way. Enough already. As he looks into the depth of what he sees going on in the world, he sees not merely evil happening, but he sees all of the institutions and the structures that are meant to, to do good for the world, to structure the welfare of the world. They also are corrupt. Notice he refers to the law being paralyzed. He, he refers to the, to the courtroom being a place where lawyers and judges can get paid off to do certain things. Uh, where those who should be advocates in the halls of government for the best that is for the people, to protect the people and to aid what is the right thing for the people according to Romans chapter 13 and God's law are now actually the very people who are oppressing those whom they're called to represent and to care for. You know, it's one thing to be hurt by someone. It's another thing to go and get recourse for that hurt and criminalization and find that those who represent you and should advocate for you are actually taking advantage of you. That's demoralizing. You see, from top to bottom, Habakkuk looks over Judah, which is where he's prophesying. In the, in the 600s, late uh, 500s, potentially, certainly before 598, when Babylon actually swept in and ultimately destroyed Jerusalem, probably during the reign of King Josiah leading up to the reign of Jehoiakim, a time in the people of Israel's history where in many regards a lot of wealth 
and a lot of good things are happening, but now there's corruption from within and there's ruins that are beginning to show up in the fabric of the nation and in the structures that actually hold things together. He sees this and he's been crying out to the Lord. And the Lord didn't seem to be listening. You see, underneath the formal complaint is a heart cry. In fact, I would argue a broken heart. Listen to verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Ooh. These are allegations. Notice he doesn't say, you can't hear. He knows God can hear. He has a whole history of redemption in the Old Testament to reflect on the fact that God is a hearing God of his people. He doesn't say you can't save. He's got a whole history previous in the nation of Israel to show that God can save. What astonishes Habakkuk is that God can hear and can save and doesn't. Do you know the things that usually unsettle us about the suffering in our own lives and in the world? It's not that we don't necessarily understand it or it's not what we don't know. It's what we actually know about God but don't feel and see and experience in life. And there seems to be a dissonance between the two. Where he says he's holy and righteous and good... And this is the world that he controls? He says he loves me and cares for me. And he sends this into my life? It's in what we know about God to be revealed and the dissonance, the lack of connection between how we experience and feel life where real doubts and questions and concerns begin to invade our life. And we begin to actually question Do we really know this God? Now, I like to say it's going to get better, but it's going to get worse first. In the first four verses of Habakkuk chapter 1, we see this protest, this complaint coming from Habakkuk. But then in verse 5, though it's not noted until verse 12, the Lord begins to speak. He begins to answer Habakkuk. By the way, he hears him. The God who he says doesn't hear, hears him. And he begins to answer him. And we think, wonderful. God's going to answer Habakkuk. He says this, Listen and wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. Now I just want to be, if you'll give me the liberty, Habakkuk for just a moment. The opening words of the Lord are, Listen, I know you don't think I'm at work, but I'm telling you right now, I'm doing something amazing. It would absolutely blow your mind. In fact, it's so amazing that when I tell you, you're not even going to believe it. And he's going, try me. Try me. I want to know about what it is that you're doing. I knew, see, I knew you were going to come through. I mean, it actually reads, and if you could hear how it is that the Lord's responding, it reads with this excitement of, I'm about to give you revelation. It's going to be awesome. 
You're going to be really excited about it. And then he begins, for behold, verse 6, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that hasty and bitter nation. Come again? You're doing what? I'm raising up the Chaldeans, otherwise known as the Babylonians, the rising superpower of the time who had just leveled Assyria and was making their way south to Egypt where the riches were, and they would be passing through the land of Judah and Israel. He says, I'm raising them up. They're amazing. They rob and pillage, verse 6. They seize dwellings not their own. They create their own standard for what is right. Verse 7, justice and dignity go forth from themselves. You can't outrun them. Their horses are faster than leopards. Their eagles come down swift and devour. Uh, You can't survive them because they're like ravenous wolves in the evening that have never eaten. And they're so hungry as they sweep through the land. They gather captives like sand. That's pretty easy to gather sand. Your protections cannot save you. They scoff at kings. They laugh at every fortress. They worship their own strength. They are their own gods, guilty men whose God is their might. I'm raising up the Babylonians. That's what I'm doing, Habakkuk. This had to be a pretty low moment for Habakkuk. I would dare say it wasn't what he expected to hear from the Lord. You know, let me, let me get this straight. I see iniquity, violence, and injustice everywhere, and your answer is to raise up a nation who's more sinful, more unjust, and more violent. Exactly. You're just making sure I heard you right. You're going to raise them up. I'm going to raise them up like I raised up Moses. Same word, Deuteronomy 18. God raised up Moses as a redeemer for Israel. 1 Samuel 2, he raised up Samuel as a priest over Israel. 2 Samuel 7, I raised up David as the king over Israel. And now I'm raising up the Babylonians. I think it's fair to say that God's answer to the problem that Habakkuk raised is worse than the problem that Habakkuk raised. We often think that the words are going to come forth from the Lord and it's going to make everything better. And it will eventually, but maybe not immediately. This wrecked Habakkuk's life. Sometimes the more revelation we gain of God, the less we understand in the moment. In the moment. Now what's fascinating about this is Habakkuk does what we would likely do, especially those lawyer types who like to argue among us here in this room who now can see all kinds of inconsistencies in what God is saying and His character and what He's planning to do. There's a rejoinder. Verses 12 to 17 that Habakkuk raises. And he, he now begins 
having protested and now heard the very perplexing plan of God, he now brings up a wrestling with the Lord over his providence. Let me show you how he he wrestles because he does it faithfully. What does it mean to faithfully wrestle with the Lord? Well, in this context, you see Habakkuk in the middle of his own heart in relationship with the Lord talk about the things that he knows about God and then talks about the things that God is doing and he wrestles them in the presence of the Lord. That's what he does. Now, if you've gone through suffering, you've gone through difficulty, and you either have, are, or will, if you've seen the complexities of the world and you found yourself completely overwhelmed and bewildered by what it is that the Lord's doing, you need to learn the skill of what's going on here in this passage. And it's the skill that navigates between two paths that I think we often mistake. Two bypaths, we may call it. One is, we don't say anything. But our mind keeps running over what God said and what He's doing and how they don't work. And we stay shut up. And we harbor it. And we might come resentful. And it leads us down a path of distrust in the Lord. It's very tempting for some of us. If you've walked through this, you, you, you know it. You're, immediately you can pick up on that impulse. The, the other impulse is to simply let God have it and totally reject Him. One is to harbor it, slip into distrust. The other is just to reject and run off and just let God have it. I want you to see Habakkuk doesn't do either one of those things. Habakkuk actually takes what he knows about God and what he heard God say about this situation and acknowledges that I don't see how they match and he waits on the Lord. That's what he does. That's what he does in this passage. Are you, verse 12, not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. What's he talking about here? I know you to be from everlasting to everlasting. That's how you've revealed yourself in your covenant promises. I know you to be holy, utterly righteous, perfect, through and through. There is no darkness in you. All that is you is light. I know that to be who you are. Oh Lord, you have ordained them, speaking of the Babylonians, as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. What's he talking about here? He's talking about God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty to choose whom he wants to choose and to do what he wants to do. He sits in the heavens, the psalmist says, and he does whatever he pleases. And you have decided to turn this nation into an instrument of judgment, and you have the right to do that. O rock, an image actually used of God's strength. But notice that he says both of these things with the opening in verse 12 as a question. He's turning it over in his head. Now, Lord, you ever done this? You ever dialogued with the Lord this way? Now, Lord, I know that you're holy. You reveal that clearly in in your word. In fact, you're my holy one. I come to you with respect, acknowledging who you are. 
you have every right to, to use your creation and especially that which is made in your image for the purposes that you determine and that you decree and you have decided to use the Babylonians for the purpose of your judgment. Lord, I know that about you. You've revealed that in the Word. Then look, verse 13. But I know this, you are purer of eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Now, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Lord, I'm struggling because I know that you're holy, but you're looking at wicked and wickedness and even using it. You're taking a nation, the Babylonians. I mean, I was complaining to you about Judah, and they're bad. But the Babylonians, they're terrible. They're ten times worse than us, and they're going to come swallow us up? I'm having a hard time understanding that. Are we? And then it gets a little deeper. Verse 14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea. Ooh. Like crawling things that have no ruler. Now the sea was a symbol for all the people of Israel of chaos. You make us as if we're tossed around in a sea. And we're like fish. Where the boat's up above and the dragnet's going to sweep below and hook us and take us to where we want to be. To where we don't want to be. And you're going to see that this nation's going to do that and it's going to rejoice. And don't you know that they're an idolatrous nation? As soon as they pick us out and put us in the boat, they rejoice and give offerings to their nets. Because they're idolaters. Lord, verse 17, is this just going to keep on happening forever? Now, what I want you to see, what he's actually doing here is, is wrestling with the Lord about what he knows about God and what he's experiencing about the decree of God and how it's posed for him as a dilemma. He realizes now that as he questions the Lord with regards to his character and, ask, and, and his concerns, he's both raising questions and doubts while probing and exploring for an answer. He is not a weak faith rejecting God. He is a perplexed faith that is tormented by a God that he doesn't understand. That's a fundamentally different thing. Have you ever been there? A perplexed faith that's tormented by what it is that you see and how it is that you're experiencing? That's exactly where he is. He's in the midst of that dilemma. But here's what I want you to see that he does. He continues to prayerfully probe the Lord for an answer. You know what we would often do? We'd try to find a book on the will of God and read our way out of the conundrum. We try to talk to a friend who would counsel us and complain to them about how God is acting. But what's Habakkuk doing? It's the most obvious thing that we haven't yet mentioned. He's praying. He's actually speaking to God about his struggle with God. He's really wrestling with God. 
He's actually spending time with God. And the reason we know that he's not faithless is that he's praying. The very act of prayer is an act of faith. He's in the midst of a tormented and perplexed faith, but he's praying nonetheless. It's a faith, as Augustine put it, that is seeking understanding. It's a faith that is openly exploring with the Bible open and the soul on the table for God to come and to reveal himself. You see, when you begin in a protest and you get an answer that causes you greater concern, what you do is you wrestle with God until you can rest in God. Because what you see actually in chapter 1 is the fact that Habakkuk, similar to Job, doesn't get a direct answer to what it is that he's after. In fact, what God begins to do in the next chapter, which we'll see in just the first four verses of chapter 2, is he begins to show Habakkuk what really the life of faith is all about. And he wants Habakkuk to see, I'm doing something amazing. And you know what? You wouldn't believe it if I told you. Because God knows that Habakkuk can't see it. Parents, you know what this is like. I remember it the first time that we took our child to the doctor to get their immunization. And you're trying to keep them happy as they come before the doctor and you're smiling at them. And we're all getting a little worried as the needle is prepared. And all of a sudden that smiling, cooing, sweet baby who's looking you in the eyes feels the needle go into the side of the arm and gives you that, what in the world are you doing look? Like, we don't have this kind of relationship. You feed me, I'm happy. You put me down, I sleep. You change me when I'm dirty. You do what I want. You don't create pain for me. I look to you, and I think good things. And in this moment, all I feel is pain. Now, you know what you could do with your six-month-year-old or your one-year-old? You could sit down with them, and you could try to explain immunization to them. Let me ask you, how well would that go? What feels like pain that will kill you is actually the pain that saves you. In this passage, we just can't see that yet. And Habakkuk can't see that yet. And in many of our lives in this room, we can't see that yet. And we may never see it, this side of glory. You see, when God is fulfilling our ultimate desires, he often will not fulfill our immediate desires. It has to be that way. It's how he grows us up. It's how he calls us unto faith. A couple of lessons of walking with God in here. God is saying this to Habakkuk and he's saying this to us. I am doing something when it doesn't appear like I am. 
That's a, that's a wonderful operating principle for life. If you think God is not doing something, you're wrong. He's doing something. You just can't see it. That's what God is saying to Habakkuk. He's also saying this. I'm up to something good even when it appears I'm up to something evil. Even when it appears that I'm up to something evil. What that means is what you see and experience is not the litmus test for what's actually happening all of the time. That there is an explanation underneath the experience that you may or may not be privy to. For God's ways are higher than our ways. And His thoughts are not our thoughts. And the hidden things belong to the Lord. When it looks like I'm not doing anything, I'm doing something. When it looks like I'm doing something bad, I'm actually doing something good. And if I tell you what I'm doing, it won't make any difference. You won't believe it. That's what God says in this passage. Do you know probably why God leaves us in, you know, this is the way it feels? Why he leaves us in mystery without explanations? For the same reason why he told Habakkuk in verse 5, I'll tell you, but you're not going to believe it. In fact, it's a little bit humorous. So listening to one minister on this, on this passage, he said, you know, it's, Lord, give me an answer. The Lord says, you're not going to like the answer. Try me. Here's the answer. I don't like the answer. I don't like the answer. Don't do that. Don't do that. Another answer. Give me another answer. That's what the passage is. That's the whole passage of, first one, of, of chapter 1. And he's like, I told you. I told you. I told you you weren't, you weren't going to like the answer. And then I told you. When it looks like I'm not doing something, I am actually doing something. When it looks like I'm doing something evil, I'm actually doing something good. If I were to tell you what I was doing, you wouldn't believe it anyway. So trust me. I'll make it plain in time. We haven't gotten that far in the narrative, but that's where we're going. I told the first service, God is really interested in this thing called faith. Like, really. Like, he's far more committed to it than I am. Far more. I'd rather know so they don't have to have faith. Rather than to be left in mystery and have to trust someone who I'm not sure what he's doing. R.C. Sproul, years ago, I was first getting into theology, wrote a little book called The Essential Truths of the Christian Faith. And in that opening article, he said the first principle of the study of theology is the incomprehensibility of God. The incomprehensibility of God. Now, in saying that, Sproul did not mean that you, there's nothing you can know about God. He just said, as you get to know this God, what you know about Him, you will find as you dig into that knowledge, will be utterly incomprehensible. I think it has to be this way. It has to be this way. Think about it. When we go to God, we say, God, give me an explanation. And you go, you know, I can't. If I give you an explanation, you're not going to believe it. Okay, you, I'll give you the explanation so you don't believe it. If, if God is infinite and we are finite, if he is going to share everything that he knows to us, 
by necessity, we would have to be God to understand it. We'd have to be. We'd have to be. Which means that you will, by necessity, live in mystery. How will you get along in that? Especially when we've got Babylonians trampling over holy places in Jerusalem. You've got to know enough about that God that gives you the ability to trust Him when you can't understand Him. When the shot goes into the arm of the child and they give you that look like, this is different. I don't like this. Can we go back to our previous relationship? And they, for the first time, are learning that this double-edged thing called parenting and being parented will require both pleasure and pain to grow them up to who they're supposed to be. And if we're going to grow up to be Christ, which is what we are called to be, there'll be times of soaring pleasure and intimacy with the Lord, unlike we can even imagine. And there'll be times of devastating pain that will feel an awful lot like a cross. You see, Habakkuk couldn't see what was going on. But we're a little further along in the story. You know, when the people of Israel are actually sent into Babylon, we read about this last year in the book of Daniel, when they sweep in and they take captive just like sand, as is described here, the people of Israel. What actually happens is the people of God are spread out among the nations. It's called the dispersion during the exile. As they are spread out in the book of Daniel, what do we find out that God does? He gives amazing witness for himself among the Gentiles. He shows himself in power and glory, the likes of which uh, Nebuchadnezzar and King Darius couldn't even imagine, but actually become God-fearers. While at the end of the book of Nehemiah, a pagan king by the name of Cyrus, who now has a call from the Lord to send the people of Israel home, many of which do, but many of which stay dispersed, lays the groundwork for what will be the Greco-Roman Empire, a lingua franca, the Greek language for the Bible to be dispersed among all peoples. And Roman roads for that gospel to go forth into all areas. For a Christ to come to fallow ground in Gentile territories like Samaria, where we just came in John chapter 4. For when he shared the gospel, it was already ripe for the picking. It was white with harvest. See, Habakkuk, I'm doing something remarkable. And if I told you, you wouldn't even believe it. Because this little battle that Babylon's going to do is going to affect the history of redemption 500 years from now. My ways are not your ways. And my thoughts are not your thoughts. And you know what's the most remarkable, Habakkuk? is you display in this passage incredible faith in verse 12. You are my Holy One. And notice what he says. We shall not die. How can he say that? Does he mean to say that nobody in Israel is going to die through the Babylonian exile? <laughs> A lot of people are going to die. 
hundreds and thousands are going to die. What does he mean? I think he's indicating an evidence of faith. An evidence of faith that says, though I die, I never die if I'm in you. Though you slay me, Job, I will trust in you. Though it appears that you're doing injustice, I will follow you. I will hope beyond what my eyes see, and I will trust to the faith of the God who's revealed, not to the pieces that I'm trying to put together on the evening news. For you would be astonished about what God is doing in North America in the 21st century. But if he told you, (laughs) oh, you wouldn't believe it. And I wouldn't either. Because it's really hard to believe that he took the most unjust trial with trumped up charges, with all kinds of deceit and deception, with the betrayal of one of his best friends, Judas, all kinds of violence, suffering and injustice. He took that moment. You know what he did? He turned it into the moment where all justice was satisfied on the cross. When God poured out his righteous judgment for all of his people on Jesus and brought justice out of injustice, brought grace out of destruction, brought life out of death. You wouldn't believe it if he told you. But it's true. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We believe. Help our unbelief. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.